I am glad to be with you guys this morning. I um, hate sometimes I work so much um, overnight at the hospital, especially on weekends. It sometimes limits my ability to be here present with you guys, and I am glad that is not the case this morning. I am also very glad that it is going to be 70 degrees today, so it's time to fire up the barbecue pit. So, this morning, I want to talk to you on a topic that I've been thinking about for some time. Um, I, I've kind of shared this before, but often, whenever I know that I'm going to be preaching or speaking or teaching at some point, it's usually not a, you know, right before I have to go up and teach, I come up with my topic and I write it all down real fast and then have the lesson. The truth is, most of the time, I feel like God will impress something on my heart. Maybe it's, maybe it's directly for me initially. But it'll be some kind of topic or subject that I'll spend two, three, four weeks just kind of thinking about and contemplating in my own head. And then by the time it comes around to preach, it's kind of fleshed out and worked and ready to present to other people. And so today, what I want to talk to you about is this. Decisions in desperation. Decisions in desperation. Matthew chapter 14, and I'll read uh, three verses here just kind of to open up with. Matthew chapter 14, starting in verse 23, says this. And when he had sent the multitude away, he went up into a mountain apart to pray. And when the evening was come, he was there alone. But the ship was now in the midst of the sea, tossed with waves, for the wind was contrary. And in the fourth watch of the night, Jesus went unto them walking on the sea. Now, we, we all likely know this story where the disciples are out on the boat and the winds begin to blow and, and the waves of the, the sea begin to get troubled and they become a fearful that they are going to perish, that they're not going to be able to weather the rest of the storm and, and they become desperate for someone to intervene. They're convinced in their minds at this point that if something doesn't change immediately, they were going to die. Now we know that the end of the story is they see Jesus walking on the water and Jesus comes to them and steps in the boat. And when he steps in the boat, the, the waves calm down and everything is good. But the story is very interesting to me because there's some things that happen prior to them getting on the boat prior to the storm taking place, that sets the stage, I think, for us as a model, if you will, to understand how to respond to desperation. So again, just want to talk to you for a few minutes on decisions in desperation. How many of you have heard the phrase, desperate times calls for desperate measures? It's a phrase that most likely all of us have heard at some point, maybe in some variation, but we all understand what it means. The truth is that this phrase has been documented all the way back to at least the early 1500s, maybe even prior to that. But this is the earliest uh, writings, if, we, if you will, that we find this type of phrase. And in, in some um, stories, they will give the credit, if you will, for this phrase to Hippocrates, the Hippocratic Oath, the gentleman that they kind of um, look to for medicinal purposes when a doctor gets their license, that they take this oath that their obligation is supposed to be to helping their patients. The, the, the saying you've probably heard, do no harm, right? 
that the intent of everyone providing care for another should be with the understanding that it is what's going to be in their best interest and with the effort to never cause harm. Erasmus, a famous Dutch um, philosopher, also has a, a similar phrase accounted during the same time where he says essentially the same thing. Now, there is a few variations prior to this one. Listen to this. and this, I found this really interesting. It says, an earlier version of this proverb reads, extreme and undesirable circumstances or situations can only be resolved by resorting to equally extreme and desperate actions. And one earlier version even than that states this, desperate diseases must have desperate remedies. Now, that last one, at least for me, hits a little different now where we are in, in, in our society after coming out of, of years of, of COVID. And this, what I'm going to say next, let me preface with saying this. I never want to turn the pulpit into a political soapbox. I don't ever want to be found guilty of standing behind a pulpit to use as a tool to make you believe what my political beliefs are. But I do think that there are times where what is happening in the world, whether it be political or economical, that we have to at least discuss because it ties directly into our walk with God. Now, I don't care if you believe that COVID was all a lie or if you believe that COVID was the worst pandemic of, man time, of man, man's whole life. I don't care if you got the vaccine or you didn't get the vaccine. I don't care if, if this is the biggest issue for you or not. Because for me, the issue here is not whether or not COVID was real, COVID wasn't real, any of those things. But what is real for me, what I think about in my mind is in this time of desperation, Governments around the world took actions, some of which directly went against God and his word. But unfortunately, what we have seen time and again is that in fear, many, even within the church, will do things they would have never done previously. I think about Australia they had literally shut down the country to the extent that if you were found to be in your own yard, outside of your own house, you could still be arrested because fear had gripped the world so strong that it caused desperate times to render an extremely desperate approach. And again, this is not about covid this is not about politics. It's not about any of those things. But the Bible tells us that in the last days, men would be given to all sorts of fear, diverse lusts, that they would heap unto themselves people who would tell them what they want to hear. Because the truth is, whenever we are faced with fear or desperation, it is the time in which we are most vulnerable to ignoring the voice of God and listening to any voice we think will give us peace and safety. 
You know, the enemy is cunning. He's, he's not going to stand up on the stage and say, I want you to follow me to hell. I want you to come with me on an all-expenses-paid trip to eternal damnation and suffering. Right? I, I, I would bargain to say that no one would want to go on that trip. But that's not how the enemy approaches us. Instead, the enemy approaches us with an insidious trap of offering hope, offering peace and safety, when in reality what he offers or is bringing is destruction. And the first thing that he does, the first thing the enemy does in this process of getting you to walk away from God's voice is doubt. You see, long before you reach the stage of desperation, you almost always start with doubt. And doubt in and of itself alone is not necessarily bad or good because it is unfortunately a side effect of our human sinful nature. We all have doubts. We all have moments where we're confronted with something that maybe we haven't had before. And in that moment, we have doubt. Am I doing the right thing? Am I really following God's voice? Because why is this happening if God really loves me? We all have these moments of doubt. And you know what? The Bible is chock full of people who would later be called faithful servants who also experienced doubt. Gideon was called a man of great valor, a mighty man of valor by an angel that looked him face to face and said he was a mighty man of valor. But was Gideon's response, great, let's get our weapons and fight? No, his immediate response is, I don't think the angel really knows who I am. So just in case... I want you to take this fleece here and you're going to make it wet and the ground dry. If you do that, then, then I'll believe you. It happens. So now surely Gideon is ready to step out in faith and do what, what he was told. No. He says, oh, okay, that was just fluke. Now what I want you to do is the fleece is going to stay completely dry, but everything around it is going to be wet. And the angel again provides. And yet this, this feeling of doubt still stayed with him. He walked out and saw the scene of all the enemy troops coming toward his location. And despite the miracles that he had just seen, again he becomes fearful and begins to doubt God's word. But the angel tells him to look up. Look to the hills where your help comes from. The truth is, is that the help was already there. God had already provided a means. But as long as Gideon looked through the lens of doubt and disbelief, he could not see the provisions that God had laid before him. Abraham, the man, you know, that we call Father Abraham, the father of the generations, when he was told by God that he was going to have a kid, he, he had to question God, okay, God, listen, I, I hear what you're saying, but do you know how old I am? Do you, do you know how old my wife is? I'm going to guess Sarah probably was not in the room when he said that statement because, you know, probably wouldn't have worked out very well. But the truth is Sarah responded even worse. When she heard the promise that she was going to have a kid, the Bible says she laughed. Imagine laughing at God when he's giving you a promise. But this is the power of of doubt. There are some situations that I can 
almost immediately recognize the lie of the enemy and turn toward God's truth. See, here's what happens. Doubt creeps in initially. Doubt, again, a normal human thought process. The initial process of having doubt is not sin. If it was, pretty much every hero of the Bible, so to speak, would have never made it. But doubt should give way to faith because doubt should drive us to look to God and his word for understanding and the answer to that doubt. But when doubt doesn't give way to faith, it instead grows and turns into desperation. You see, for me, if, if the enemy were to come to me and say, Jeremy, I'm going to attack you by making your bank account almost empty. I would be able to look at the enemy and say, yep, been there and done that many times before. And yet God has provided every time. In my younger years of, of marriage, I can remember many times looking at my bank account and thinking, man, it is missing some zeros. I don't know what happened, but I need something. But you know that every time I stay faithful to God in those situations, God always came through. He always provided what I needed. And each time I responded appropriately, my faith continued to grow more and more. So don't get me wrong, I don't want to be broke. I really don't. Hopefully nobody does. But the truth is, is that I've learned to trust God in times of hardship when it relates to money situations. And I imagine if I pass the microphone around to each of you in this room, there would be things that you can think about that God has shown himself faithful time and again. That if the enemy came against you with that particular topic, you would say, nope, been there, done that, I'm, I know what needs to happen. But there are other circumstances. Other times in which maybe it's not something we've had to face before. Something that brings about a spirit of fear, desperation, anxiety. We don't know how to respond because we haven't been here before. We haven't had to fight this particular battle. You see, for me, the thing that I probably think about the absolute most throughout my day-to-day -day life is my kids. I can't even tell you the amount of time that I have spent in my own brain thinking, will I be able to provide for them? Will I be able to, to protect them from this world? Will I be able to keep them safe from the enemy? I recognize that as a father, God has given me a charge that long before I am called to stand here in this pulpit and talk to you, Long before I'm called to, to any other ministry, my first ministry must be to my family. If I can't be a good father to my children, how can I protect God's children? If I don't know how to look at the best interest of my kids, how could you trust me to look for your best interest? And so I spend a lot of time thinking about this, sometimes maybe too much, because sometimes... I, in my mind, I get a little fearful, and I worry, and I have anxiety. God, what if I can't do it? What if they grow up, and when they get married, they tell them, oh, yeah, my dad used to do 
this, this, or this bad thing, and I didn't like it. I've had those thoughts in my mind, right? I remember when I first met my wife, we were over in Afghanistan together, and, and, and we had spent a long time talking about all sorts of different things. But one of the things I very distinctly remember from the very early part of our relationship was we shared with one another our history. We shared with one another the life that we had as kids and, and our parents and how they parented and the good things and bad things they did. And I remember sharing with my wife that, that I didn't have a father, that he was absent from the moment I was born. And that the man that my mother chose in his place was no better. And how that those things stayed with me throughout my life. And even to this day. So in turn, I think about my kids and wonder what will they say about me when they meet the man that they will marry. It's in this time of fear, uncertainty, and even anxiety that we are most vulnerable to making decisions that are contrary to the word of God. The Cambridge Dictionary says, gives a definition for the word desperation. And there's several of them, as this word has been around for a long time, but listen to how it des describes it. Desperation is the feeling you have when you are in such a bad situation that you are willing to take risk in order to change it. Desperation is the time or the experience, and when you look at something and you are so fearful or afraid or anxious about it that you will do things you would not normally do to try to alleviate that fear or anxiety. Now, a few years ago, there was a few doctors that had got together, and they were interested in understanding why people make bad or foolish decisions. Um, the article goes, I'm going to read just a few small excerpts, but kind of give you some context here. These two physicians basically were looking at uh, the headlines of, of all these different politicians and actors and actresses and other famous people, and about how that these people who seem to have everything go about making extremely foolish decisions that ruin their career. And they were interested in why? Why, if a person has everything they could ever need, do they still go about making these foolish decisions? They say this, when we read about famous people ruining their lives or hear about normal people becoming famous for public follies, we shake our heads in wonder. We tell ourselves we would never do anything like that. But science tells us that we would far more often than we'd like to believe. They go on to give a, a reason, if you will, as to why they think this is. As they look through hundreds and hundreds of different cases, they notice a specific thing that kept popping up time and time and time again. It says, in the scientific literature, George and I noticed an interesting pattern. Under the right circumstances, a subconscious neurobiological sequence in our brain causes us to perceive the world around us in ways that contradict objective reality. 
distorting what we see and hear. George and I named this phenomenon brain shift and found that it often happens in situations involving high anxiety. Under these conditions, all of us would do something just as regrettable as the headline-grabbing stories above, contrary to what we tell ourselves. Now, I will tell you, I don't agree with that. I don't agree that we should accept that we will make these foolish decisions anytime we face a situation. I, I don't agree with that. But, but I do think what is being said here should be taken to heart, that, that, that it should come with a bit of a warning you should remember. Listen to this. It says, phrased differently, once our perception is distorted, we act in ways that seem reasonable to us, but are foolish to observers. Have you ever, in your life, been faced with a decision, and now you look back on your response and you recognize, that was dumb. I should not have done that. I, I, I can think of many. And the truth is, is that I am certain that other people who know me, who have known me for, for most of my life, could also think of some. It's easy, especially when you look at others, to see the choices they're making in their moment of fear and anxiety and say, why would they do something so stupid? I mean, maybe that's just me. But the truth is, is that the reason sometimes that we make those decisions is because our perception of reality is so distorted that our response seems right. When in reality, we don't even understand the full scope of the problem or how that our decision is actually making it worse. It's the one thing about addiction that I have found to be true over and over and over and over again. I don't care what type of addiction. The truth is, is that 99.9999% of the time, the reason people struggle with addiction is because their perception of the world is so distorted that they think this is the only way that I can feel different than how I feel now. This is the only way I cannot feel this guilt and shame and, and hurt and pain. And so the, 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 the trap of addiction is that not only do we make a foolish decision, but now our brain is so warped that the thing that is killing us is the thing we keep going back to over and over because we foolishly believe within ourselves that it is the thing that is going to save us. And time went way faster than I thought it would. Okay. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to a text here, and I'm just going to read parts of it, because I think there are some lessons in the story that we first began with in Matthew chapter 14 that I want us to take with us. And probably at some other point, I'm going to come back to this message again and, and go into some other practical steps. But for the sake of time, I want to point out a few things. Matthew 14, in the first several verses, we see Jesus feeding the 5,000. Now, remember that when it says that Jesus fed the 5,000, the truth is there were actually probably much more than 5,000. If you read the text, it says that there were 5,000 men. And then it says there were also women and children. So more than 5,000, as if 5,000 wasn't enough, but that God does this miraculous thing 
And one of the things that I, I love reading in the Gospels is how that everything that Jesus expects of the disciples to do, he models for them. So we know that Jesus would send the disciples out to carry the word. We know that Jesus would call his disciples to continue the miraculous through him. But before he just sent them out the door, he first spent time role modeling what that means. So here the disciples come to him and they say, Jesus, it's getting late in the evening. We're in the middle of nowhere. You need to send these people away so they can go get food for the evening. But Jesus says, no, no. How much do we have currently? And we know the story. They go, they find the fish um, and, and the loaves of bread. Jesus takes it, he breaks it, blesses it, and it feeds everyone. From that story, the simple thing we can take is that you can never have too little if you have God. Because God takes what we have and pushes it far beyond what we could ever do on our own. But the second part of the story is, after Jesus fed the 5,000, the Bible tells us that he told his disciples to get in the boat and go over to the other side. But Jesus didn't go with them to the other side initially. Matthew 14 tells us that he went up into a mountain alone to pray. And that while he was up there praying in the mountain, that's when the winds began to blow and the sea became rough. And now in their desperation, they thought that they were going to be destroyed. I want to look at Mark 6. This is the same story, and I'm going to read a very small section of it. Because I want to point something out here. Mark chapter 6 and 45, it says this, listen. And straightway he constrained his disciples to get into the ship and to go to the other side before Bethsaida, while he sent away the people. And when he had sent them away, he departed into a mountain to pray. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. This part, the disciples knew. The disciples knew Jesus told us to get in the boat and go to the other side. They knew that Jesus didn't come with them. So they knew in their mind that they were on their own, alone in the middle of the storm. This is a situation that they had not been faced with before. And now they were fearful. They were fearful they were going to die. And in desperation, they began questioning their own beliefs and thoughts and ideas. And they thought, surely we are going to perish. And I have to think about this, that if Jesus is the one who told them to get into the boat, it was under his direction he said, get into the boat and go to the other side. I know in my brain, my human brain, I'm out in the middle of the this, this, this sea and the storms are raging. I feel like I'm about to die. Why did God send me out here? God told me to do this, and now I'm about to be destroyed. Like, why, why would God do that to me? But what the disciples didn't know is that while they were in the midst of the sea, while the storm was raging and the waves were blowing and they were so fearful that they were going to die, listen to what it says starting in verse 47. And when even was come, the ship was in the midst of the sea, and he alone on the land. And he saw them toiling and rowing. 
for the wind was contrary unto them, and about the fourth watch of the night he cometh unto them, walking upon the sea, and would have passed them by. Pause there. Did you catch that? Jesus sent the disciples on a mission. He told them, get in the boat and go to the other side. The storm raged and they were fearful because they felt alone and that they were going to die. And yet we see recorded in the book of Mark that Jesus saw them in the storm. Sometimes in our own lives, we become desperate and we think, God, no one's helping me. No one understands me. You told me I was going to do this ministry. You told me I was going to do this. And yet here I am in the midst of despair, feeling alone and abandoned. But God is trying to tell you, I see you. You may not see me, but I do see you. I think the biggest thing that, that hurts us as Christians is this feeling of isolation, this feeling of no one understands me, this emotion of I'm alone and no one cares, no one loves me, no one's going to intervene on my behalf. You know why I know that it's true? Because at 14 is when I, I would say I got into church, that I started taking God seriously. And from the age of 14 to, I'll be 40 this year, and man, that went by fast, wow. From 14 to 40, do you know what I have seen at every single church I've ever been to? Every family I've ever known who live for God. The thing that every one of them has the same is that at some point in their walk, something happened and they felt alone. I can't tell you the number of people I've heard I was out sick for three weeks and no one called me. Brother so-and-so said something mean to me and no one even checked on me. And we tell ourselves this lie of isolation. We tell ourselves that no one can see us and no one can hear us and no one is going to help us. What you need to know this morning, and hopefully every day after, God sees you. But not just that God sees you. You see, when Jesus was up in the mountain, looking down toward the disciples in the midst of the storm, what was it that he was doing? He was praying. You see, the book of Romans tells us that that there are times when we don't even know what we should ask. Where there is so much happening and our brain is so flooded with so many emotions, we don't even know what to pray. But Paul says, the Spirit maketh intercession for us. You see, the power of being connected to Christ even when you can't see him in the midst of the storm, is that his spirit is making intercession for you in your darkest times. The fact that the enemy would tell you you're alone, you need to remember that, yes, I don't see exactly where we're going, Jesus, but I know that you sent me in this boat. I know you told me to go into the sea. So if there's a storm, it must have a purpose. And if it has a purpose, 
you will make it come to pass. If we will remember that God sees us where we are. If we will remember that God sees us in the storm. Now look back here in Mark chapter 6. I'll tell the last little section of the story. 47 and 48 tells us that he saw them. He saw the storm. And then it says in the fourth watch, he went to them. The fourth watch is from about 6, 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. Why does that matter? Well, if you read the whole account here in Mark 4 or in Matthew 14, they tell us, it tells us when the disciples got on the boat and left. It was the evening time. It wasn't night. It was evening. So let's just throw out a number. There's just a number for illustration purposes. Let's say it was 7 o'clock in the evening. Now, Jewish standards, that would already have fallen into the night. But let's just say, 7 o'clock is when God told them, get on the boat, go over. Jesus does not make himself visible to them until 6 a.m. That's a long time in the darkness. That's a long time experiencing fear and doubt when they didn't see God moving in front of them on their behalf. There's a saying that I know you've all have heard before that it's always darkest before sunrise. The darkest hour is always before the new day begins. And here we find the disciples in a moment of despair, in a moment of complete darkness, where they saw no future and no hope, but in the darkest hour is when Jesus steps on the scene. And it says, But when they saw him walking upon the sea, they supposed it had been a spirit and cried out. So they wanted God to help them. And as soon as they see Jesus, they're like, oh, that must be a ghost. What is that? For they all saw him and were troubled. And immediately he talked with them and saith unto them, be of good cheer. It is I. Be not afraid. And he went up unto them into the ship and the wind ceased, and they were sore amazed in themselves beyond measure, and wondered. For they considered not the miracle of the loaves, for their heart was hardened. You ever wonder why that, that last sentence is, is here in this part of the story about them almost dying in the ocean? Why all of a sudden does it start go back to the story of the, the loaves when... Yeah, that happened previously. We're, we're in a different situation now. The reason why that, that line is there is because, you see, the disciples, in their moment of fear, completely forgot that just earlier in the same day, God took what was impossible and made it happen. God took a situation where the disciples could not see how Jesus was going to provide for all these thousands of people sitting here listening to him. They looked at the situation and they did not understand. How are these people going to be fed? We don't have enough resources. And yet Jesus took what they had. He blessed it and broke it, multiplied it, and provided for the needs of all the people. 
So now when they go through this whole situation and storm and fear of how is it that we're going to make it through, and then Jesus steps on the scene in their darkest hour and says, have no fear, be of good cheer, because I'm here. I can imagine in their heart it clicked. That's what that was about. God demonstrated us just hours prior of how that he can take what is impossible and yet still provide when they need it. Let's all stand. Church, what I want you to take from this message is this. Having moments of doubt is not a single issue. For as long as you walk on this earth, you will encounter times and situations. You will encounter hardships. You will encounter feelings of doubt and loneliness. But the more times that you are willing to look to God's word for your provision, the stronger you become and the easier it is that the next storm that shows up on your doorstep, you can say, hey, I've been here before. I know the world thinks I'm done. I know that they think that I'm all washed up. I know that they think that there's nothing left that God could possibly do for me, but I've been here before. You see, I've seen God move on my behalf in the past. I've seen God heal in times where the doctors said it couldn't happen. I've seen God provide financial blessings. I couldn't even wrap my mind in how it was going to take place. I've seen God in my own life. When I was lost to addiction, when I had a heart that was so overwhelmed with fear, and I watched God intervene on my behalf. So the devil should know that if he comes at me and says, there's no hope, I'll say, yeah, I've been here before. And God has always made a way. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you that you are faithful. I thank you, O oh Lord, that your word is forever settled under heaven. That heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word shall not pass away. And that no matter what the enemy throws at the church of Omaha, no matter what the enemy throws at me and my family, I know that you are faithful to save, that you hear my cry, that your ear is not deafened unto me or unto your saints. I know that even in the darkness, you are the lamp unto my feet and the light unto my path. That when I don't know what to do, I know that you go before me and make the crooked way straight. Lord, I pray encouragement in this house. That we would rebuke the enemy and his lies that tell us we cannot make it. And that would, we would remember, oh God, that you are for us. You go before us. You are our strong tower, our shield, our buckler. You are our strong defense, our rear guard. You are the shadow in which we can rest. We thank you, Lord. Help us to meditate on your word. We give you all glory and all honor. For you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name, amen.